Well, it's another podcast. Just called Picking It Out. It's another podcast, y'all. It's gonna be Picking It Out. Got Dr. Harvey Schiller in the house. Yeah, we're gonna be picking it out. Well, hey, y'all. Appreciate y'all tuning in once again with us. As always, my name is Andrew Pope. And uh, be sure if you like the show and you want to show your support, go leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. That would greatly help get the podcast out there to even more people. Um, and if you got a wrestling friend or a fan of country music or music in general or sports or all the crazy kind of stuff we talk about here, send them to my YouTube page. Um, and we appreciate you subscribing to the YouTube because we put the full video versions of the podcast on my YouTube. You just type in Andrew Pope and we appreciate you uh, subscribing and continuing to hang in there with us. We've got a really big guest that I'm really honored to talk to today. Um, most of you know this man from wcw that listened and watched this podcast i'm sure um but he has literally done so many things i was telling him before we jumped on here you know normally i don't make notes we just kind of shoot the shit and um i made a lot of notes today because i didn't want to miss nothing leave anything out uh this man is one of the most important figures in sports in business uh, that there probably ever was. He was instrumental in so many different things. And we're honored to have him with us here today to talk to us a little bit. So uh, we got Dr. Harvey Schiller. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Oh, I appreciate you doing it, man. Uh, I'm even, I'm even going to tell you a little bit about music, too. Okay. Well, I figured you had some music stuff we could sneak in there. <laughs> So uh, let's just go back to the beginning, man. Um, you know, there's not really a lot of people I don't. I feel like, well, I know there's not um, that really know your background, and uh, well, it, it's a hell of a background to say the least. But you were uh, you were born in Brooklyn, New York. Yep. And how was uh, how was Brooklyn back in those days when you was a little tight running around Brooklyn? Well, it was, um, it was still a big city as a borough of New York, but it, as a school kid, you really had the opportunity to use mass transportation. You, you know, in today's world, somebody drives you everywhere. We, we, we were really subway kids <clears> or <throat> buses or tro even trolleys in those days. You know, I, by the time I got to <clears throat> high school, I either took a bus or a trolley and my high school was walking distance to Ebbets Field where the Dodgers played. 
Wow. And uh, when I when I became old enough to work, I worked at Ebbets Field selling stuff, just depending on the time of year. If you were a new kid, you got stuck with hot chocolate in April. And uh, then you sold, you had a rocket on your back and you sold Orange Aid or, or you had to sell souvenirs after the game. So it was quite an experience. And I did that for a couple of years till I graduated and went off to college. And uh, you have a good upbringing, your parents. Uh, Parent, my, my both parents worked. I was one of the, what are, nowadays they call them a latch kid key. I had a key to the, from about the age of five or six, I would walk from my public school to our apartment and make my own lunch and then walk back. And it's hard for people to believe that when you're five years old, but that's the world I lived in. Wow. And, and people didn't bother you, of course. You know, the, the grade school was one street away and the high, junior high school was one street away. And, and by the time I got to high school, I had the opportunity to play football. And that led, you know, Al Davis, former owner of the Oakland, now Las Vegas team, his son at least, um, he went to the same high school. In fact, the high school produced about five or six people that have had significant positions in uh, sports. Uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, owner of the White Sox and the Bulls. I had dinner with him last week. Um, the Tisch brothers, who own half of the Giants. Um, Doug Mull, who was a general manager and player in the NBA. He was my classmate. And um, there were a couple of others as well. Billy Cunningham, the 76ers, he played basketball there. So we had quite a tradition of professional sports that came out of there. Anyway, Al Davis started coaching at the Citadel, and he wrote to me and asked me if I'd be interested in going there, and I decided to attend. And he was a freshman football coach at Citadel. And that led to four years of college education. I majored in chemistry, but I, I took a delay on active duty to go to get a graduate degree. And... Uh, eventually went into the Air Force as a pilot and spent 24 years in the Air Force, retired as a Brigadier General and uh, spent a year in Vietnam flying combat missions and quite a, quite a time there as well. Wow. Uh, what, what position did you play when you was at the Citadel? I played, and in those days, you played defense and offense. So, you know, it, my roommate was Paul McGuire. He was a hell of a player. He was a, obviously was a professional player. I, I didn't last very long. I dropped out in my freshman year. I weighed all of 170 pounds, and uh, it was just not safe for me to continue to play. Right. <laughs> yeah. I played a little bit in high school. Uh, I, I didn't really do anything. I was, I was a defensive tackle. But I was kind of stocky. Uh, one of our – you know, I went to a small high school in North Alabama. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my high school was pretty big. We had a total about six or seven thousand students in the high school. Wow. And it was one of the oldest <clears throat> schools in America. It was started by Alexander Hamilton, actually, and then became a public school. But it was uh, famous for producing actors and actresses and people in finance and sports, and it was a good education. <laughs> yeah, but Brooklyn. It was nothing like it is today, of course, but it was, uh, you know, it was a place where you rode your bike. It's hard to believe that. You'd ride it 
to the park or you'd ride it to the beach at Coney Island and you you had a, those things were all part of your life when you were a young kid in New York City. Yeah. That's uh definitely a a bygone era. Yeah. A lot of kids well, nowadays yeah. won't even won't even know what that's like. That's sad. Yeah. Well, you you learn to buy pizza by the slice. Mm. And the uh, things that have come across America now, you know, everybody ate bagels in New York City. Now everybody eats them everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Oh, uh, what did you have an interest when you were in school uh, with chemistry and science and so um, just something you, you chose? Know, sort of a family thing. Uh, it, it's strange to say this, but. I had a cousin who studied chemistry and my mother said, you ought to study what your cousin is studying. <laughs> I mean, it sounds a little silly in these days, but that's the way that's you, you listen to your mother. And uh, I wasn't very good in science in high school, but I turned the corner in college and had a fellowship to the University of Michigan teaching fellowship and worked on my master's degree. When I came back from Vietnam, the Air Force sent me back to Michigan to work on my PhD, which I did receive. Wow. And that led to serving at the Air Force Academy and started my career in sports because I was the Air Force Academy's representation to the NCA. And at the same time, the Olympic Committee moved to Colorado Springs, where the Academy was. So I started to volunteer and got involved in both intercollegiate sports and Olympic sports at the same time. Now, how exactly did you get involved uh, with the Air Force? Is that just something you wanted to do? Well, um, friends, I was very, people would say I'm immature now, but I was really immature then. And um, I would listen to people. My friends said, you ought to apply for pilot training. We're applying. You should, you should apply. And it was really funny because I was very young and I still – when I applied to pilot training, I still hadn't learned how to drive. Wow. Because in New York City, you had to be 18 to drive. And I went to college when I was 17. And I didn't turn the corner until 18, until later. So uh, most of the questions that they ask you on the exam were about cars. And I didn't even know what a carburetor was at the time. And if you saw my exam paper, you could see how it was turned and twisted to see where the gas went in and the air came out and so forth. <laughs> and, and it was uh, quite an experience. But anyway, I qualified. And then while I was in working on my master's degree, things were getting a little rough between the United States and Russia, the Soviet Union at the time. And they called me up and said, it's time for you to go to pilot training. So I went and uh, did pretty well. Uh, and had some assignments in White Sands, New Mexico, and, and flying, and then went to Vietnam for a year, flew out of Saigon in a commando squadron, and uh, the Air Force Academy recruited me to come teach, and then when I got there, they said, well, we'll send you back for a PhD. And eventually, I was appointed by the president of the United Each of the service academies has what they call permanent professors. I think there's 18 at each academy in addition to the regular faculty, and you're appointed as a professor by the President of the United States. And it's almost like a federal judgeship. You could stay there to age 65, and I stayed about six years, six or eight years, and then started my career in sports. Amazing. That's uh, So you piloted 
and in Vietnam, you were you were uh, flying the C one twenty three. Yeah, C one twenty three. It was all uh, special forces and uh, Ranger support in Vietnam. So you were flying along Cambodian border, south, north. Almost all the missions were in the south. And you did over twelve hundred. That's what I've got here. I had quite a few missions, about 700 combat hours. I wow. shot up a few times, but they never hit me. They hit the back of the plane. God, how freaking scary would that be? Oh, well, you're too young to be afraid. Yeah. yeah. You, just, you just, you don't think about that. If you did, you'd go nuts. But see, you know, it was, uh, it was an interesting time because people will tell you who served in combat that it's a chance to test your courage under fire. And it's not great when it happens, but it's sort of a gift later in life. When sure. you get challenging times and things are rough, how you handle them, you know, yourself. And, and you know, from your background, the sports world is very challenging. Everybody has an opinion. You know, people don't go to, they don't go to the movie and say, oh, they should have done a better job of editing that scene. But they do go to a game and say they shouldn't have called that play. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then people say they can't find their car in the parking lot. They know a lot about what the coach should be doing and what the officials should be doing. And, you know, just about there isn't I don't think there's ever been a pass interference play that's been called by an official that everybody agrees with. Never no. happens. No. Especially the players on the field. They're, someone told me with well, the best line I heard is that the thing that upsets coaches is that officials don't care who wins. <laughs> Boy, this, be favored, yeah. That's on up there. That's a good line right there. Uh, mm. Did you ever have any any of your comrades, uh, did they, were they injured or killed or anything? Yeah, we had, um, we had a number of airplanes that were downed and the pilots were killed during mm. my time. Um, we part of my squadron was what they call ranch hand, which was that now it's a bad thing to talk about, but they sprayed Agent Orange to kill some of the crops, right? Or the foliage in South Vietnam. And those planes were especially vulnerable to enemy fire. And I would say just about anyone who was shot down and killed was flying for ranch hand, Agent Orange. But, but I'd say. My squadron probably lost ten percent mm. people. You know, the biggest things were um, after a while, and some people were not meant to be in combat, and yeah. they would take ground jobs rather than continue flying. And that usually was self-elimination. But it, you find that across the board and anything that's a dangerous occupation, whether it's police work or firework or military. Um, thank you very much for your service, by the way. Thank you. Uh, you end up at the university of Michigan. I did graduate work there. Um, learned how to play rugby. Oh my God. I was actually president of the Michigan Rugby Club for a while. We had a lot of great experiences because most of the people who played rugby were either graduate students, med students, or law students. 
and many of them had played college football. And uh, we played Ohio State and schools around the Big Ten. And uh, actually, we played Ohio State after the regular Ohio State-Michigan football game. So 101,000 people actually watched the rugby game. By the end of the rugby game, there's probably 500 people left. But at the beginning of the game, <laughs> started out, left, it was 101,000. <laughs> probably set a record. But wow. uh, that was a good time. And, and, and as you know, Michigan is a great university. Not known for sports, but it, you know, it's produced uh, a lot of people in different things. They've been lucky to have a lot of wealthy people that have really their, – their sports facilities are second to none. Oh, yeah. Not stadium but you know their field hockey for women is that they have their own stadium tennis has their own stadium baseball has their own stadium which wow. is unusual across even the, even the even most of the division one major schools the big four big five yeah i wasn't aware of that um well how was it you know being a professor through the uh well i enjoyed teaching and did some research um, you know, the academy, all the academies, West Point, Navy and Air Force only pick the best people to be on the faculty. So you have, uh, you have people you really enjoy being with and, you know, they're, the academies are different when it comes to sports because, you know, they're not going to get the very best athlete that that happens. Sometimes there's a picture at, Navy who graduated probably will go pro. And there have been some others, as you know, there's the Roger Staubachs of the history of the Navy and people like that. But, you know, you talk about one in thousands. So they play for the school, but they're all going to have a career in the military when they're done. Many Navy and Air Force are going to be pilots and some are going to be SEALs and some are going to be Rangers and some are, it's just who they are. And, and many of them give their lives up. You know, we've been lucky to have presidents who served at the academies. Jimmy Carter is the one who went to the Naval Academy. He was a submariner, and uh, he was involved in the nuclear Navy. And, of course, Eisenhower was well-known. He had played football at at Army and uh, went on that's not to be the leader in Europe, but to be the president of the United States. By the way, here's a, here's a question. There are five... See if any of your fans can answer this. There are five universities, colleges that have had a Super Bowl winning quarterback and a president of the United States. Mm. There are five colleges and universities that have had a president of the United States and a Super Bowl winning quarterback. Well, if, anybody, um, if anybody knows that, uh, leave it in the comments down there because, uh, yeah. I sure as hell don't. <laughs> you want the answer? Yeah, give it to us. Lay it on. All right. So uh, Stanford, Elway and Hoover. Oh, wow. Okay. Michigan, Brady and who's friend? Ford. Okay. Uh, Navy, Staubach and Carter. Delaware, oh. and Joe Flacco. And here's the one nobody gets, Miami of Ohio. 
president was Harrison. Rothenbacher was the quarterback. Wow. I would have never known any of that. You can win a lot of money with that one. <laughs> yeah. I, well, you can have me at Delaware, too. I've kind of. People never guess Miami of Ohio. Yeah, that's. Uh, wow. That's uh, something I had never even thought about. That's a good piece of information to know. I guarantee you, before you said that, somebody somebody probably knew most of them. <laughs> oh, they probably don't know. They probably wouldn't know this either, that, unless they were a historian. Harrison was the only grandfather and grandson presidents of the United States. Hmm. So really? that's, that's another piece of trivia, but that's for the history people. Really? Yeah. Huh. So anyway, the, you, your question about the academies was a great experience. And uh, I stay in touch with many of them that were my students. And uh, anyway, it's just, just nice to hear from them. Many of them went on to fly commercials. M many stayed in the Air Force. Uh, many went on to have careers in business or law in other areas, like most colleges do. Um, here's, a, here's a piece of trivia. So Troy Calhoun, who's the coach at Air Force now, he was a, one of my, he had freshman chemistry and he was one of my class. And we were, we were playing in the Independence Bowl. And he came out for a jog one night before the game and he saw me. And he said, did I pass chemistry? I said, barely. <laughs> I said, but there are probably 50 or 60 students who lucky to have you in the class because you made the cut line. <laughs> and he passed because you passed. <laughs> I remind Troy of that all the time. So. <laughs> well, I mean, that, you know, it's kind of a uh... – a, a big change there, a big shift, you know, coming from all of that to becoming the commissioner of the SEC in 1986. Well, when I became commissioner, I said I'm, to my mother, I'm going to be head of the SEC. And she told our friends I was going to be head of the Security Exchange Commission. So <laughs> uh, that, that was an interesting story. Um, the president of the NCA at the time was Will Bailey, who was president, I think, of the vet school at Auburn. And he called me up and he said, I'd like you to interview to be the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. And I said, well, I'm really involved here at the academy. I've got a long career ahead of me. And I don't really. I was on the NCA council with him and the NCA executive committee. And I traveled to Birmingham and met at the old Central Bank building in downtown Birmingham. And sitting around the table were the 10 presidents or chancellors of the then the SEC, LSU, Alabama, Auburn, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi State, Mississippi, Vanderbilt, and so forth. And the night before, everybody was congratulating Roy Kramer on getting the job. The night before. Idiot. So Roy, good friend, as you know, was the AD at Vanderbilt, and he was going to be the heir apparent. And he was interviewed just after me. So they could; those presidents couldn't get to Roy fast enough. They wanted me out of that room. 
<laughs> my language, but they want my ass moving out of there as fast as they could get it out of there. <laughs> so, um, Gerald Turner was the chancellor of Mississippi. He's now the president of SMU. He asked me the question. He said, I don't think we want somebody from the military because I was still on active duty. And I said, why? I said, well, people will say that the commissioner will have a, a military mind. So I stood up and I said, you know, this conference has been known for cheating its entire existence. It wouldn't be a bad thing to pick somebody from an institution where you don't like cheat or steal, but you certainly don't tolerate it. And I walked out. There you go. And they offered me the job. <laughs> wow. I called, I called my wife and said, don't worry, we're not moving. And uh, they want to make um, Turner and uh, Wyatt, the president of Vanderbilt, came out to visit my family and on the way to have lunch with them, I pulled my son, Derek, you may know he's with the Braves and um, he was 14 at the time. I said, they're going to ask you the schools in the Southeastern conference. You know him? He said, no, I don't know. So I said, okay, let's go through it. Alabama, Auburn. We go into the restaurant and Turner turns to Derek and says, you know the schools in the Southeastern Conference? And Derek says, my dad told me on the way over here, but I can't remember. And I said, we don't lie, cheat, or steal either. <laughs> so it's just a family story. Oh, yeah. It's, it was, but SEC, it, it was a, as you know from your background and most of your listeners, there is no conference like the SEC. You know, Big 12, Big 10, all of them, try to mimic a lot of things that happened. But when I, when I was commissioner, there wasn't really a lot of professional sports in the Southeast, you know, right. like there wasn't an NBA in North Carolina. There wasn't, you know, and even to this day, Alabama, there wasn't a professional team in Tennessee, but certainly not Mississippi. There were only one or two in Florida. So it was all about college sports. Yeah. And everybody knew everything. Everybody knew every recruit, you know, they'd have recruiting parties, they every and it was before a cell phone, so people were in pay booths talking to each other, you know. Mm -hmm. it, was just, it was just every territory was a little bit different. You knew you were in Louisiana, you knew you were in Mississippi, you knew you were in Florida, you knew you were in Alabama, you knew you were in Georgia. And uh it was just you were treated in a way when you were the commissioner special. Now, I know the commissioners of all of the professional leagues. They're all friends. They don't get treated the way the SEC's commissioner gets treated. Mm. People, people love the commissioner because it's part of their everyday life. And, you know, um, one day I was going to a game at Tuscaloosa when they already had their new stadium. I was going about 80 miles an hour to get there. And I got stopped by an Alabama trooper, and he started to fill out summons giving me a ticket and he got to the part where it said occupation and I said commissioner he said commissioner what I said the southeastern conference and he ripped up the ticket and asked my order <laughs> oh that's wonderful and and there were people I would meet and give them a little token like a keychain or a hat or something and I would see him two years later they had the key they were using that keychain <laughs> it was so special to them. And, and, you know, I know 
Skanky is the commissioner, and I'm sure he has the same things, ha- and Roy had the same things happen to him. Uh, so, you know, um, we started on this road, we started on the road to expansion, and some of it started by schools contacting us. Like some school like Tulane that had been in the conference before wanted to get back in, and Virginia Tech wanted to join, and Georgia wanted uh, Georgia Tech to be in it again. Georgia Tech had no interest in going again. And even Florida wanted to add Miami and Florida State for recruiting. Wow. They, they wanted to bring them all in. And uh, Arkansas at the time was part of the Big Eight. And they were the only, they were the only non-Texas school in the Big Eight at the time. So um, they made an inquiry. Our basketball was good, but we didn't have great attendance at a tournament. We had Kentucky, who was great. Yeah. And we had women, Tennessee had women's sports, women's basketball. But we weren't – we had schools that were in the NCAA finals, but we didn't have what they have today, where almost every school is competitive. And, we, I, you know, we had – in the old Omni, we had our basketball tournament. We didn't have – we weren't well attended. So Frank Broyles was a friend of uh, Doug Dickey. And he's, Dickey called me up and said, Frank would like to meet with you. So we went out and played golf together. And Broyles said, I really want our school to join the SEC. And here are the reasons why. We'll help you basketball program. Uh, and uh, you'd probably help you, help you in recruiting. So we did a study and we contacted a bunch of schools, Texas, um, Texas A&M. We probably had 15, 20 schools that either contacted me or we contacted them. And here's an interesting sideline. The, we wanted Texas, but our schools didn't want Texas A&M. Interestingly, A&M is now in the conference and Texas is joining yeah. And what happened was the step. Why we why didn't we want A and M? Well, there was some falling out between the schools, and and also the state legislature in Texas said you have to bring both schools in. You can't just bring one in. So we brought in. We didn't bring in either at the time, and um, we brought in we brought in South Carolina because South Carolina had been playing Tennessee and Georgia almost every year, and they felt like that would be a natural for us to do. And South Carolina had no professional sports either, so it was a good play. Neither did Arkansas. Yeah. And they and the other the presidents wanted uh, schools that were members of the Association of Universities, which are committed to research, and they wanted the academic side as well. That was important to them. Schools that had medical schools and law schools, right. professional graduate schools, that was important. Uh, as I said, Georgia Tech. Homer Rice, they didn't want to do anything. They, they didn't have a great history with the SEC. Uh, Bobby Dodd, when he was a coach, he said, I'll never go to Mississippi again. He refused to play in Mississippi. <laughs> most, most of my officials during my time in the SEC were former uh, Georgia Tech grads, which mm. was interesting. And Bobby Gaston was the chief of officials and he was a Georgia Tech guy as well. So they had a history in the conference. So um, we, we lined up 
South Carolina and Arkansas, but I left and Roy brought them in. So you got to compliment Roy for doing that. And Roy started the championship, but how did that happen? So I knew that we had, we were going to have 12 schools at least. And I remember from my history that um, there are some conferences like the Big East and others that have schools that don't play football and they play other sports and they have their own championships. So I went back to the rule book and the NCAA rule book said that if you have more than 10, you can have a championship. So oh. I called um, the associate commissioner, Mark, and I said, read this. If we have more schools, we can have it. We, so that's why we were the first one to have a championship. Wow. So I was called up by the NCA, Walter Byers, who was the executive director, and said, you're announcing you're going to have a championship. You can't do that. And I said, well, it's, you got to change the rule book. He said, well, that would take a year to do it. I said, well, you're not going to change it then. And that started the history of having conference championships in football. How about that? So that worked out well. Um, you know, probably a lot of other stories around that. One, one of the things that the SEC was respected, but it also was people were jealous of the SEC, envious, I should say. Sure. And, and it got down to the officials. So here's a good example. Um, they had a meeting of all the conference chief of officials in Birmingham. And I walked in to say hello to everybody. And I saw on the chart on the wall that the Rose Bowl was a closed bowl for officials, meaning that only Pac-10 and Big Ten officials could have played. And I said, well, that's not fair. You're supposed to get every team that's in a bowl game, you're supposed to get half a crew. And they said, well, history, the history is that you can't officiate in the Rose Bowl if you're not from the Big Ten or the Big 12, Pac-12. And I said, well, then my officials aren't going to be in your bowl game, any bowl game. And that changed the rules right there. Wow. And, and, and again, it was just one of the things that people saw the Big Ten as being more special than other schools, other conferences. We had to change that perception. So at, at the, in those days, all of the schools in the NCA met together, wherever the conference was, San Diego, wherever it was. And when I walked in, my first time walking in, I couldn't find my aid athletic directors. Because when I was at Air Force, we'd sit up front. The SEC guy sat in the last row. And I said to them, why don't you say, he said, well, we don't get involved in NCAA matters. I said, tomorrow, you're going to sit in the first row. So I told Mark, I said, go and put reserved on the tables in the front row. We're all going to sit in the front row. So we go sit in the front row. And the Big Ten says, well, these are our seats. we <laughs> sitting here every year. I said, not this year. <laughs> so what do you think happened? The next year, the people showed up at 6 o'clock in the morning and put reserved on there. <laughs> we, had, we had to make an agreement that we would switch off every other day. Wayne Duke was the commissioner of that. And it was really funny, but it was the way the, way the SEC was perceived. Yeah. And again, it's, it's now, 
I'm I'm really happy that the big that the SEC commissioner is the chairman of lots of committees of the NCA. He's you know the playoff championship expansion. All those things are um, things that I think the SEC has a great amount of respect for among college athletics. I think that's important. Sure. And that first championship game was in 92, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. So that's actually after you left. I left. You don't get any credit for that, but that was. If, well, Andrew, if I got credit for everything that I've done, I'd have 10 PhDs. <laughs> that sounds like it. Uh, you, you give credit to Roy Kramer. He was the commissioner at the time just like you give credit to Skanky and others for what happens now. When you're in that place, it's you get the credit for it. But it is important that people know that you were. Why? You look, nobody else looked in the damn book. Nobody else, <laughs> nobody else opened the damn book. You opened the book. I mean, come you on. got to read the book. Yeah. Well, um, it's for others to decide. You know, I think. I love intercollegiate athletics. It's a special place in America. The name, image, and licensing is changing what's happening. It's dividing scholarship players within a team, who has the money, who doesn't have the money. And I, I think an athletic director today is challenged more than any other time in history. Yeah. Programs. And, and the way things happen you know, recruiting has become so competitive. Oh. And, and you know, you, the airplanes land in California, Texas, Florida, and, you know, people are sleeping on lawns in the front yard of players' houses. You hear those stories. Uh, here's a funny story. So, um, Bo Schembechler was the coach at Michigan. And he goes into Pennsylvania to recruit a kid, and he goes into this home. And while he's sitting, while he's talking to the mother of the athlete, of the football player, the mother is vacuuming and dusting off the furniture. And Bo says to the mother, Ma'am, I'm here recruiting your son to Michigan. And the mother says, Yeah, but when you leave, Paterno is coming. <laughs> man that's college recruiting you know i've the the movie the blind side where they have the you know michael or all the all the schools i mean all the coaches are coming in you know and it's just got everything's got to be perfect and it that it's got like you said i feel like it's got to be such a um kind of a kind of a game within itself yeah, I think you're right. You know, my experience has been not today, but in the past. Players pick schools where they're comfortable. Sure. Comfortable with the surroundings, the coaches. Maybe they don't have to dress up like other students do on a campus. You know, Auburn, when Pat Dye was a coach and when Dooley was the coach at Georgia, they had a almost an at-home kind of feeling in their training tables. Yeah, and people felt that they were safe and they were looked after. But 
you know, now who knows? Maybe the money makes a difference. But I saw some interviews of some of the top recruits, and most of them are still picking places where they're comfortable. Yeah. They're not chasing the money. Yeah. You know, they have great faith in the coach. Uh, there are only four schools last year in football that didn't take any transfer students. Mm. You know where they are? No, I wouldn't three, know. Three academies. And I think it was Clemson. Mm, really? It's either Clemson or Georgia, one of the two. Yeah. Which is sort of interesting that coaches that recruit can say to a player, you, I'm grooming you to be the quarterback and I'm not going to go find one at another school. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, I feel like it's kind of, I love college football. You know, of course, being from Alabama, like you said, we don't have professional sports. Uh, we don't really need it. Hey, I remember every year when Alabama would play Auburn. Oh, yeah. What's the population of Alabama now? Oh, 100 and 100. No, Alabama, the state. Oh, God, I don't know. Probably don't about know. 2 million. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But if you ask people, every one of them was at the game. <laughs> yeah. Like it might Woodstock. have been 100,000 seats, but 3 billion people said they were at the game. Yeah. Like the old Woodstock stories. Yeah. When, when, when I would travel and talk to quarterback clubs, there was never a question about academics. Yeah. Never. No one said, um, well, here's a story. So – some of our presidents wanted to make a big strand for academics and they put together a proposition to change the NCAA rules. It was called prop 48, and prop 49, which don't count anymore, but you had to have the minimum ACT score, SAT score to uh, have an athletic scholarship mm. or be able to play. So I, there was the NCAA convention in Seattle and Prop 48, Prop 49 passed. And John Thompson, the coach of Georgetown, was playing Maryland, walked off the court. You know who the person was that proposed it and made sure it passed? Me. Wow. So he was my enemy from, you know, what happened there. And so there were a few other African-American coaches that walked off the court that night. Mm. So I got a call from uh, Dick Schultz, who was the executive director of the NCAA, said, we need, to, we need a meeting to try to resolve this issue. So I flew to Kansas City, where the NCAA was at the time. And um, Martin, Matt and Gale, I can't remember his name. He was the president of the NCAA. And Shields flew into Kansas City. We met at the Marriott. And the president of Georgetown came with uh, John Thompson. And they all walked out except Thompson and left Thompson and me in the room. Have you seen John Thompson? He's passed, but he's just not was 6'6 six, six or 6'7. Six, he was a big 6'6 six, six or 6'7. Six, he was a giant. Mm -hmm. Now, he's looking at me, skinny Harvey, 
and he's looking like I'm going to kill this guy. And I said, John, you don't know me, but we can work through this. He said, how are we going to work through it? He said, why don't we just get the NCA to give an interpretation that you still can give financial aid, but they won't play until they have a score or their GPA at the school. He says, you think you can get that done? I think Massengale and Schultz can get that done. So we shook hands and they got it done. And the players got scholarships. Now, I don't think, I think the, they don't use ACT scores anymore, you know, because of the pandemic, all that's changed. Fast forward, I hired Thompson when I was at Turner to be one of my play-by-play announcers in the NBA. Wow. How about that? So we became good friends. Well, you had a, I think you kind of had a mutual respect, you know, for each other after that. I think that's true. John, I don't know, if you've ever heard him speak, he was a dynamic speaker. He was, he probably can convince you of any, I think you can see why he was such a great recruiter in basketball. But he had that strong voice, smart guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great basketball coach. Coached one of the Olympic teams, too. Yeah, you were, you ended up as the, uh, I think, the executive director of the Olympic Committee. Do I have that right? Yeah, the Olympic Committee is the, there's a difference. Um, cities host the games, like Atlanta was hosted by, hosted the games in 1996. Mm-hmm. And Billy Payne was the president of the organizing committee. I was the head of the Olympic team. Okay. So the Olympic committee picks and outfits and does all the thing with the team, runs training centers. So Cities change every four years, but the Olympic Committee is on all the time. They raise money to do different things. Uh, now, they, in my day, it was called the executive director. Now, they're, they're called the CEO, chief executive officer. And the headquarters were in Colorado Springs. And I was head of the Olympic Committee for the Games in Barcelona, Albertville, France, and Lillehammer, Norway, leading into Atlanta. That had to be a challenging position. Well, every American thinks they own the Olympics. <laughs> so it's not quite as not quite as strong as college football in the SEC, but it's like that. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of controversy. I was part of it. It was just, you know, I'm still friendly with the Olympians from during the time I was there. We had some great Olympians. Um you know, once you're an Olympian, you're always an Olympian. Yeah. You win or lose, whether you win a gold medal or not, or silver or bronze, whatever. Oh, sure. I moved on. I was also head of international baseball when the baseball was in the games in Beijing. Mm. And uh, I'm also on the board of the World Baseball Classic, which we're going to have their finals in March in Miami. This where teams, you play for your country. So there's be some MLB players who play for Dominican Republic and some yeah. uh, about the only country that'll have a hundred percent native is probably Cuba. Because there'd be some Japanese players that play in the ML major league baseball that'll participate. Would you work at uh, getting sponsors and working deals out for, for that kind of thing when you were on the, when you were the director? 
Yeah, yeah, that's part of your job is to raise money. There's a certain amount of money comes from donations, but most of the money is from television and yeah. sponsorships. Television is the big money, like it is in professional sports or college sports. Yeah. Um. So you would would you be setting up the pitches or? I mean, I'm sure you have a team of people, but you'd be very involved with the sales well, department. The, the contracts change in television every so many years. The Big Ten just finished one where each school is going to get more than $70 million a year from the, from the deal. Uh, CBS has been the carrier of the SEC. Yeah. It's been ESPN cable games. Um, so in this world now, uh, sports content is – really, really important for broadcast. So the money is really there. I mean, the NFL, well, look at look how teams are being sold. I mean, you know, just a few years ago, they were in the $100 million. Now they're in the billions. Yeah. And it's all tied to television money. Sponsorships are strong, but they can't duplicate. I mean, they can be X million dollars, but they're not a billion dollars. Yeah. Big difference. You know, um, I do some work in some other sports for sponsorships. And you really you really need that media money. You really need the broadcast money. Yeah. Uh, at what point did you meet Ted Turner? Um, I met him first when I was at um, the SEC. Wow. Southeastern Conference. Uh, he, some of our games were on Turner. So the real early games, the ones that started at 12.05 Eastern, which really angered the Central, you know, if you're on yeah. Central time, that's 11 o'clock. Yeah, that Trying was us. The team ready at 11 o'clock in the morning compared to playing that night. Yeah. A lot of angry coaches and ADs, but, you know, you had – so – and, you know, Vanderbilt got picked all the time to be the 12 o'clock team. <laughs> yeah. Everybody wanted Georgia and Alabama and Auburn. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in those days, Alabama and Auburn were not, even Georgia, they were not national. They were, people in the Northeast didn't care. Right, yeah. I, I checked after the Alabama-Auburn game the first year I was there. In Connecticut, during that time shot slot, they were showing reruns of Gomer Pyle. Yeah. Think about that. Now, owned and operated stations had to carry the broadcast, but those that were independent franchises didn't. Yeah. Nowadays, you know, it's grown to show natural national interest. But even I don't know how many people that live on the West Coast and I would include Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, care about SEC football. Just like who cares about Fordham? Yeah. Yeah, I think I had Vern Lundquist on here. I talked to him. Um, and when the CBS got the SEC deal, um, I think that was very important. Well, the timing of the team's uh, – what was going on at the time, I think, helped. I think it was in 2000, maybe, when the SEC on CBS slot yeah. uh, got going. 
that really put it on a national level, like on a big scale deal, I feel like. Well, it's like NBC carrying Notre Dame. Yeah, that's right. So they have rights to every home game of Notre Dame on NBC. That's right. You know, uh, and, and over time, Notre Dame football has come back, but there was a dead period. Yeah. Where Boston College and some of the others were really among Catholic universities were drawing more fans than Notre Dame was. Mm-hmm. So nothing's guaranteed. You know, uh, I, I think I think the challenges that lie ahead, we mentioned earlier, the name, image, and licensing, I think that still is, because that affects the players. Um, I think the transfer portal is another thing that people have to spend, think about that. Yeah. Um, the strength of the NCA on in, enforcement, there's, you know, they're, they're really not doing anything right now. They can claim they are, but they're not. Right. Not forcing anything like they used to. So I think recruiting could get really out of hand. Rumors, schools are subject to rumors about how they get certain players. Yeah. Um, and I think that's tied to NIL, but it's also tied to the weakness of the NCA. Sure. It's not what it was. You know, I can kind of feel, I kind of feel like it's leaning towards the next few years, maybe the next, within the next decade, more toward the, you know, NFL side of things politically. Um, I hope it don't ever get there uh, because that was, it makes it special. These kids are so hungry and they, a lot of them, it's just it's life changing for so many of these young guys to get out there on a national level and really compete and get ready for the NFL if that's what they want to do. Um, but I feel it's slowly, slowly kind of you know a lot of these these four or five stars they they think they're a star when they get into the program they think they're already a star. Social media, all this stuff. I don't I don't necessarily think it's a good thing all the way around. Well, when you're, when you're a good athlete and you're 13, 14 and 15, you're getting a lot of attention. Oh yeah. Recruiters from agents, you know, players hated Bobby Knight because Bobby Knight would take that kid who was a star when they were 14 and reduce him to nothing and then build them back up again. You know, you can't get away with that. You can't curse a player now. You can't, yeah. do the kind of things that people would get away with in those days. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right. Here's here's something that could happen. I'm not saying it will happen, but you mentioned like the professional. Big schools could license their marks to a professional organization. So the University of Alabama football team could be a professional organization and has the rights to use the Alabama marks but they're not in the university. They lease the stadium, but, but that, that team plays for the University of Alabama, but they're not the University of Alabama. Mm, interesting. There are probably a dozen or more schools that can get away with that today. Yeah, agreed. Today. And people will go watch them. Yeah. 
know, it's not going to be like the USFL or any of those. It's people go on. And it doesn't preclude, you can pay a student anything you want. And they could take one class or no classes. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a special category where you have to have so many students on the team. I don't know. But I think things seem to be moving in that direction. You know, the marks of the school are controlled by the bookstore. People don't really know that. And the university gets money for the use of the marks. Sponsorships are relegated to the team, but really the use of the marks is covered by the bookstore. So, you know, an aggressive university could make a change. I don't it's be complicated, but it could be done. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, well, there's something here I want to bring up because a couple of years ago, I'm watching the last dance <laughs> on a, on Netflix, and I think it's which is phenomenal. I mean, I grew up; I had the I had Jordan posters in my room, Rodman, Pippen, all of them. You know, they were just they were outstanding. It was such a great time in the uh, mid to early to mid nineties. Uh, but I hear Michael Jordan in a car, um, and he's being recorded. They have a lot of backstage footage for all of you that haven't seen it. It's called The Last Dance, and it's really long, but I think it was part five. Um, you had put together a deal with Reebok, um, and Reebok had made these uniforms uh, for the 92 USA Dream Team, which Jordan was a big part of, to say the least. And uh, all of a sudden in the in the thing, Jordan's being filmed, and he says, Harvey Schiller, what a dick. Yeah, call me a dick. <laughs> and he says, the guy who said, if we don't wear our uniforms, we can't accept our gold medal and all that stuff. They said they are going to try to hide the Reebok on it but they can't hide it like I'm going to hide it. They are in for a big fucking surprise. Yeah. And then you sent out a tweet on May 3rd, 2020. Well, I bet the Dream Team members still have their Olympic Reebok award uniforms. Uh, This, first of all, watching this documentary, I had a whole new perspective on Michael Jordan and his ego. Now I know he's one of the best ever, you know, still to this day, but he his agent. I do business with his agent, David Falk. So he's a good friend, but a little bit of history there. Um, Reebok outfitted the entire team. That's about 700, more than 700 people. Yeah. So if you, if you were a judo player or a wrestler your all your stuff was provided by Reebok. Right. You know, jackets, t-shirts, hats, everything. The dream team had was supplied by Champion. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting that deal because the chairman of the company that owned Champion also owned Haynes Underwear, which Michael Jordan was a would appear in their ads. And so there was there was a lot of things going on behind the scenes. He never complained about champion as being the uniform for the games, right? Yeah. 
we actually gave out Hanes underwear too to the to the uh, athletes. So so I met with the team. Now I'm six four, but when you meet with the team, you feel like you're a midget. Sure. And I said Charles Barkley was on the team, for example. Charles Jopley got on a chair and said to the team, you better listen to this guy. I knew him when, he, when I was at Auburn. So imagine that meeting. And yeah. I said, if you don't wear the Reebok uniform, the award uniform was a separate uniform. If you don't wear the Reebok award uniform, I'm going to make sure you don't get the gold medal. Now imagine, now these are all professional athletes. So I called up uh, Phil Knight. He didn't want to talk about it. Like he didn't care. He said, that's up to their agents. He's, in fact, he quoted, he said, who does Harvey think he is? Janarino? Janarino was the attorney general of the United States. Right. All the, I was the bad guy. Yeah. Impressed. So Jordan goes to one of the assistants with the team and says, get me an American flag. This is on Sunday of the award. I know who she, Joanne's a good friend of mine. She, she says, where do I find a flag in Barcelona? <laughs> so she went in the stands and bought it from a fan. Oh, wow. That's where he got his flag. And he draped it over his Reebok uniform. And, you know, there actually was something that happened before that. Dave Gavitt was the president of USA Basketball. He came to see me and he said, we got a real problem here with Jordan. And I said, well, did you see Mary Jo Fernandez was a tennis player? And when she had, when she wore her Reebok uniform, the flaps of the uniform were open and covered the Reebok. I said, just tell the guys to unzip the jacket. It'll flap open. You won't see Reebok. So he went and told the team that, but Jordan didn't like that. He didn't care. Some, if you look at the pictures, some of the players have it flap open. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at the end of it, a couple of them became sponsored by Reebok, by the way. I don't remember which ones, but turned out <laughs> to be financially successful. Uh, I I know Jordan. I mean, we're not friendly, but we know each other. and Yeah. All that's passed. And as I said, his agent is a good friend of mine. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Some for some of my friends says Dick stands for director in charge. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you can't the number of people who called me. Now, first of all, Jerry Reinsdorf was the owner of the Bulls. He's a good friend. He calls me up several weeks before it airs on ESPN. And they had sent him a copy because of the Bulls. And he says to me, boy, you really are a dick. So what are you talking about? He said, even Jordan thinks you're a dick. I had no idea what he was talking about until people started calling me. Have you watched this program? No. You know, I'm also in the one that they did on uh, Lance Armstrong. Mm. He didn't call me a dick. but He he was in my office when he won – you know, he was a triathlete and won national championship. And when I was head of the Olympic committee, he came to see me. And, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of. You know, I've been around a lots of professional athletes. And the, people won't like to me, hear me say this, 
The easiest to be with are hockey players. Hockey players are different. Think about this. When they were five years old, somebody had to tie their skates. So they've always been part of a family. Mm. If you if you go if you see the draft, you'll see family members of different groups, NBA, NFL, and, and the ones who really don't advertise themselves are hockey players. So they're they're they have a different attitude towards their sport. You know, if you go to an NHL all-star game, when they show videos during the game, mm-hmm. hockey players are all staring at the videos. When they show videos during the NBA game, the players don't look at the videos. Huh. You know, it's all about them. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, they don't get the fan support that the other teams do. Right. Teams do, so they say there are lots of hockey fans in every city, except they're all at the game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the summer games, the '96 summer games in Atlanta. Uh, you were instrumental in bringing the Olympics to Atlanta, wasn't you? Well, I was part of the group. I wouldn't say I was instrumental. I think you got to Billy Payne. You give him most of the credit. He organized it, and they had a group of about six or seven people that were his friends that did a lot of marketing. They were very very unique in the way they push the games. Uh, you know, I helped in a few places. Billy and I traveled to Kuwait and other countries together. Uh, but he, we were also the co-chairs of the marketing and the sponsorship group um, and did the television negotiations. It was a great games, but it, and internationally it didn't get the credit that it should because NBC, Dick Ebersol wanted to use Muhammad Ali to carry the torch for the last portion. And Muhammad Ali is the guy who threw his gold medal in the river. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't well liked and received internationally. But that was, there were a couple of things that happened like that that didn't get the respect of the international committee. Um, that was one thing also. The naming of the stadium to Turner Field didn't make them happy either. Mm. Now, here's a piece of trivia. The center, when it was converted to a baseball stadium, the center of the Olympic Stadium became the center field wall. That's how big the infield is of an Olympic Games. So. Why didn't they like Turner's name on the stadium? Because Turner had the Goodwill Games. And the Goodwill Games were looked upon as being competitive with the Olympic Games. Wow. Silly. Now, of course, it's a different stadium, so it doesn't matter. That's uh, that's crazy. It's crazy. It's all crazy. Sports are all crazy. The people are crazy. The sports are crazy. But we love it. Yeah, you gotta love it. Yeah. Apparently, apparently, we all do. Well, it's easy to have a conversation about sports. Yeah, if you start having a conversation about politics, you can get in trouble in a hurry. Yeah, especially in twenty twenty three. We're not going. There. We're not going there. Oh, uh, well, now this is something I've always wanted to know. 
you know, Ted Turner, which you mentioned before that you had met uh, when you was commissioner of the SEC in the late 80s, he, he wants you to become the very first president of Turner Sports. Yeah. Uh, and what year would this have been, 94? 94. And how did he just call you up, or do you have somebody call you and have a meeting, or how did this come about? He would call, but he also had Terry McGurk, who was worked for him then, now the chairman of the Braves. And they made me all kind of offers, and I kept turning them down. And then it, it started to get a little crazy because um, rumors started flying around Turner that I was leaving, even though I wasn't leaving. And, and when people think you're leaving in a business, you might as well leave. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, once the word's out that you're going to leave and you can't change it, it's over. Yeah. You got to, you, you may want to stay, but people are still saying, oh, he's going to go. He's going to yeah, go. He's yeah. You're, you're on the shit list at that point, basically. That's right. And, and especially in media. Yeah. You see it in the news right now, what's happening in Hollywood and television and so forth. People, rumors kill something. And then, so I, um, I spoke to Ted, but McGurk was really the guy who did most of the negotiations. And it was a, it was a great job. It was, it was, um, we, at the time we had, we did television, all the television for the Braves, all, all the cable television for the NBA. It was before the, uh, before ESPN got involved. We bought a hockey team. I was the president of the hockey team, the Thrashers. I was charged of WCW, as you know, and we had the Goodwill Games. We had other sports on television. We we were acquired by Time Warner, and we had everything that Time Warner offered: HBO, Warner Music. We owned at the time we owned three movie studios: New Line, Castle Rock, and Warner Brothers. Jeez, we really had everything in entertainment. You'd go out to California and meet the people in Hollywood and you were the sports guy. They treat you, you know, everybody was integrated at the time. Ted and working for Ted was beautiful. You know, he, he, I don't know if you know this, but he was a big benefactor giving money to the Citadel where I went to college. Really? And, you know, his three sons all went to Citadel. So he, once he knew that I went to Citadel, that was another thing. One day he walked up to me and he said, I'm a billionaire and you're not. And I said, well, I'm a general. You'll never be a general. I could still be a billionaire. And that would piss him off. <laughs> he got pissed off. And I could get a, I could, you know, people say he's crazy. I think he's brilliant. But he, I could get him going. Yeah. And people say, stop doing that to him. And he said, no, some of it is really private. I can't say, but yeah. he, he's just a wonderful person. He's, you know, he's suffering now, but he's brilliant mind. You know, if you wrote a book of his life and made a movie, no one would believe it. Billionaire, um, a 
news station in Moscow, starting a news network, starting all the, you know, international broadcasting as well. Owner of the Braves, owner of the Hawks in the NBA. Own at one point owned more private land than anyone else in America. Yeah. Sixty some miles of trout streams, cattle. Married a movie star, Jane. You just—it's a make-believe story. Yeah. But it's all true. Yeah. And you know he just an interesting guy. You just—you never knew what was going to come out of his mouth. He would—he would say things. And, but he was always thinking of something brilliant. You know, we were, he used to say, um, on my tombstone, they're going to say, I never owned a network like CBS, NBC, and ABC. So Dick Ebersole was the head of NBC Sports, and he said, I think, I think NBC's for sale. I said, really? He said, yeah. You should tell Ted. So Ted was staying at the Waldorf in New York. I knock on his door, and I said, I think it's good timing to buy NBC. He said, no, 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 never happened. Two weeks later, he calls up NBC and says, I'm ready to buy. So <laughs> too late, General Electric bought us. <laughs> I think it's everything. Wow. Yeah. Man. Yeah. He, he was just, still is. Uh, He's one of those people that you're lucky to have in your life. Sure. Um, you know, I think it, I think it takes being a rebel to a certain extent, you know, as you are yourself. Uh, you have to be, nowadays they call it a disruptor. Oh, a disruptor. Okay. That's the terminology that's used. So Apple became a disruptor for phones because they put a camera in and did other things. They would, that put... Kodak out of business. So you change what people ex now people expect the next level of it. Yeah. Electric car Tesla was a disruptor. Yeah. But people, some people are disruptors. Yeah. David Stern was a disruptor in the NBA. When he became commissioner, the finals were on tape delay. They weren't even live. Hmm. Think really, so there's. It's not easy to be a disruptor, though, because that means some people are going to miss, lose their jobs. Things yeah. are going to change, and that's just the way it is, you know. Yeah, you know, I, I think there's this misconception of the 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 whole rebel thing and or an outlaw or, uh, you know. Not a shit stir, but just like a rule breaker, I guess you could say. Because look at Waylon Jennings. You know, in the country music world, he was kind of that guy. Yeah. But he was a damn good human being. He was a good person um, that wanted to do things the way he wanted to do them because he had a vision to do it that way. And he saw it. And nobody else at that time had thought in this way. And I feel like Ted and yourself just thought outside the box and made your own box, really. I think and, that's uh, true. You know, uh, who would have thought taking a station in Atlanta and rebroadcasting it nationally that they did to TBS, where guys who worked on the Alaska pipeline were Braves fans. Yeah. 
Yeah. Hard That's to believe. But, huge. But, you know, the Braves fans throughout the Southeast today, more than there are others, of course, there wasn't professional baseball. Yeah. So disruption is, if you can do it right, yeah. you know, make it a better world for it. Yeah. And that's, I think that, so my music background, you ready? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I was the guy who helped put together the Live Aid concert in 1990, in 1980. Wow. Five. Wow. Philadelphia. Okay. We got to hear about this. I wasn't aware of that. That's not out there. So no, that's not out there at all. In fact, I have a picture Life magazine at the time did pictures of all the stars. They got an old beat up restroom in the stadium where the old baseball stadium. And I have a picture of my family in that same bathroom with where the stars were. So um, there was a guy who worked at the games in 1984, Mike Mitchell. He was an organizing kind of guy. And he got a, he was contacted by a number Bob Geldof, music people, uh, about doing, raising money for African relief. And, and things moved so fast, he called me up and said, you have to help me do this. Come out to LA, spend a few days and see what we can do. So my job was to meet with the mayor of Philadelphia and get it all, you know, you know that here's some pieces of trivia. You might remember there were two concerts at the same time, Philadelphia and Wembley Stadium. And then the people from Wembley took a jet and flew over and joined the stadium in Philadelphia. And there were three television shows at the same time. One was on ABC. One was on... Um, What's the music channel? I have a block here because uh, I don't watch it. Uh, uh, MTV? Yeah, MTV. I did an interview on MTV. I was the most famous kid person among my kids' friends. Oh, I bet. That was a huge deal back in the day. It was really a big deal. Uh, and we had a cable show, an ABC show, an MTV show. And there were like 17,000 people on the infield who never sat down. Hmm. And the fire department said, we're not going in there. We're going to leave them because they wanted to, they wanted to hose them down with water and, you know, get them to move out of there, but that never happened. Uh, so with a lot of little things, uh, we raised a lot of money. We had some sponsors. Um, everybody wanted to touch it in the music world. Everybody was calling. I want to be part of it. I want to be part of it. And we paid. No one got paid. Mm. It's like, what's your name? Rihanna at the Super Bowl, she didn't get paid. Yeah. But they made the album cover. Yeah. And on Monday, sales go through the roof. Mm -hmm. So we had all of those people doing the same thing. It was it was exciting. I'm not a music person, but I helped. I was in charge of all the fundraising and the production in terms of security and so forth. I, um that was the launch. It was a music group from Philadelphia, and they got their first start there. Uh, it was it was it was interesting being around those people. Yeah, push and pull and angry and 
Sounds kind of like the wrestling business. <laughs> I, I, I'm an investor. I do some private investing now in some music groups, but you know, when the pandemic hit, concerts were just done, finished, and they're trying to come back now. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. But yeah. I'm, I'm not a music person. Yeah. It's kind of similar, uh, kind of similar worlds because it's entertainment. You know, it's uh, ticket yeah. sales, sponsors, you know, but there's well, a difference. Stern used to say, when people go to the NBA game, I don't care if they remember the score. I just want them to have a good time. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So you entertain people when they're at a game. Yep. You try right. to. Mm-hmm. Try to. So when you came in, was Bill Shaw still uh, Bill in charge? Bill Shaw was in charge of WCW, not me. Um, and then whoever was the powers to be asked me to take over. There was some internal issues. There were some things with the – we had 130-some wrestlers under contract. Mm -hmm. you know, we, had, we were doing shows every day somewhere. Yeah. You know, we – we had the television show in syndication on Monday night. We had it on uh, Turner channels. And then we had the pay-per-view every month. The only thing that makes money is the pay-per-view. Mm -hmm. Everything leads up to the pay-per-view. And nowadays it's a little different because, you know, wrestling is on every channel. But um, so when I first got the job, I was at a function and someone walked up to me and said, I was watching the show tonight, and one of your wrestlers fell out of the ring and broke his back. I said, no. Yeah. They carried him away. So I called up Eric Bischoff, and I said, Eric, when things that terrible happen, you have to call me. He says, well, I'll come to your office tomorrow, and we'll talk about it. So he came to the office, and he said, you didn't believe that, did you? <laughs> I said, well, I did, actually. He said, all you got to do is learn this one thing about professional wrestling. If you can't talk, you can't wrestle. It's all talk. Except for one guy. We had Goldberg, who never talked. Yeah. That was his whole shtick, that he never talked. I love the guys, you know, Hulk and Macho Man, who passed away, and all of them were just they're just good people. And they really were professionals. You know, as the show goes, you know, there are people sitting in the locker room telling the referee what to do, and the referee tells them what to do. And But it's all orchestrated in some way, and people love it. Families love it. Boys love it forever. Girls drop out at about 14 or 15, young girls. They don't like the violence after a while. Mm-hmm. You know, I would instill some rules that I didn't want any violence against women. No blood, because, you know, sometimes they, in the old days, they would put razor cuts on them and they would bleed. Mm -hmm. And I started drug testing. And, and I think people got along. It's really funny that Eric does work for Vince McMahon now, because yeah. during that time, 
I had a call from Vince. He wanted to bring the two groups together. Imagine. I met with him in New York, and he said, you know, we could just bring these together. And I said, well, it's good that we go against each other. He said, but you're going to have to get rid of Bischoff. I said, I'm not going to do that. And wow. fast forward, they're working together. So that's good. Eric, Eric, Eric is and was, was and is a creative person. Yeah. Sometimes he'd create things that I thought was so crazy. You know, one of them, he wanted to get lost in an airplane. I said, I'm a, I said, I'm not going to be part of the people searching for you when it's not real. I <laughs> he was, wanted to, he was going to fly into Mexico and disappear. So, <laughs> uh, wow. So, uh, and, you know, but, but Eric would come up with these ideas, you know, and some of it was usually it was pretty good. Um, then they said, Eric said, you got to come on TV and fire me. And I asked all my people, I said, you can't do that. It's, you, you don't want to be part of that. I said, no, I'm a little bit of a showman myself. I'll go on. So the idea was that I was going to fire him on TV. You probably saw that video. Oh, I remember it. Yeah. So it was all ad lib. There's no script. Wow. And Eric is an actor. Yeah. I'm not. I had to bite my tongue to keep from laughing. <laughs> if you watch my mouth, I'm, you know, yeah. I was going to crack. I was going to start laughing because I thought it was funny. And me saying, I don't even want to see you in a restroom here. I made that up standing there. <laughs> but, you know, what else are you going to say? So when I got home that night, my wife is yelling at me. What's wrong? The phone is ringing off the hook. What did you do? I said, well, I was on TV. She said, people are calling. And when, when is Eric going to be rehired? People, you know, think it's real. So the next day I said, what do I tell people? Say, tell them you're going to turn it over to the executive committee. It's up to them. There you go. There you go. Uh, how much, how much leeway would you give Eric, you know, when they started really being successful without having to go to you first on something? Does that make sense? If it's something um, big, I would say that except for something that was extraordinary, he would do it on his own. Yeah. He, he, he would be, I think I was at fault for giving him too much leeway because really? The people that the senior people at Turner, not Ted, but some of the senior people that were ran the networks and all, mm -hmm. they thought he was doing too much on his own. So I probably should have reined him in a little bit, but you know, because basically they, when I left, they sat him out. Yeah. And that probably wouldn't have happened if they had more control. Uh, you know, but Somebody that's that creative, you you gotta let him go. You gotta let you know he he uh, he knows the business. Yeah, it, it's a special business. He knows the business, and I put in some ideas which were really bad. For example, we had Dennis Rodman appear in one of the shows. Mm-hmm. That wasn't a good idea. Why? Because that made it look really fake. Mm. Dennis mm. Rodman is not a wrestler. He's a yeah. basketball. Tyson is a boxer. He's not a wrestler. 
So the real fans didn't want to upset the apple cart on what they expected. Putting, yeah. putting a celebrity in there who everybody knew wasn't real. Even though it garnered really media attention. Franchise. So those are bad decisions. Um, that, you know, oh, why don't we put, you know, Dennis Rodman was causing a lot of controversy uh, in the NBA. And I figured, you know, we transfer some NBA fans over to never happen. Mm -hmm. So you got to be careful with what you really are. Yeah. You broadcast and media and, you know, and you can't exploit it in those kind of ways. I, I think Robin skipped a practice to be right. on, to be on nitro. I've heard Eric talk about this. <laughs> I think he's, I think he said he was, he was paid like a million bucks, uh, for his 750,000 or a million for his stint in WCW. And, you know, I get it from a media standpoint, like later on when Jay Leno was brought in and the whole crossover thing with the tonight show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it does. It does. I see what you're saying. I do see what you're saying. Is it like and then it was it, my idea to do a show in uh, where all the motorcyclists come in South Dakota? Surges? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do a show there. Nobody cared. Yeah. I had all of the guys drive in on their cycles. I mm -hmm. even had a motorcycle that I brought there, but I wouldn't ride it. I was afraid to drive it. So one of the one of the security guys drove it there from Minneapolis. <laughs> but we did an outdoor show. It wasn't. We didn't get a very much of a good rating. You know, it it just had it. It would be like if you ran the Superman franchise or Batman. You, you can't take it and have them do things which are just. You know, it's not real, but you can't make it really not real. Yeah. Oh, uh, when did it hit you that WCW was really on to something? Oh. Well, um, I think one of the things happened when your salespeople that sell the advertising mm -hmm. were really ripping it, that, you know, they're more sponsored. Now, now sponsors are that, by time, within a broadcast, but they're not tied to the broadcast. Right. So in those days, your sponsor was tied to the broadcast. So you had sponsors didn't want to associate themselves with professional wrestling. Mm -hmm. Now, when you watch your advertisement on television, for you don't see it as being part of professional wrestling. It's just an ad for potato chips or whatever it is. Yeah. In those days, you were tied to the ad. So we had, uh, oh, Manufacture Hormel to manufacture spam. Mm -hmm. We were going to create the spam man. <laughs> One of the our creative people man. said we have the spam man. And you're going to laugh at this. Spam people said, oh, no, it's going to make our product look too cheap. <laughs> wow. Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. So they had sponsors like uh, Armed Forces Recruiting and others. So... You know you're hitting it when the sponsors, when people are buying more time, and that's all tied to people watching it. Yeah. So just like your program, number of people who 
tune in or watch it are where the, you know, advertising dollars go. You know, I always wanted to know too, were you in on the meeting uh, where Ted basically gave Eric the um, information that he was going to have to compete with Vince? No, uh, I don't know if there was ever a meeting like that. Uh, Eric has said that there was. A, he he had went in to pitch something he was working on internationally, and and Ted stopped him in the middle of his pitch and said, "What do we got to do to compete with the WWF?" No, I don't. I probably was done before I went there. Okay, it may have been. I was thinking it was ninety five. I don't know. I, I don't know anything about that meeting. Um, when Hulk Hogan was brought in, uh, was that kind of a a headache in the office? As far as licensing. Here's the only thing that uh, you learn. Hulk created his own image. Mm -hmm. Which meant he owned his properties. So when you sold WCW shirts with Hulk on it, Hulk got the money. So that's why they created Goldberg and some of the other characters. Because they owned the characters. Turner owned the characters. Whereas... Hulk owned his own character. And and I think Macho Man owned his own character. Some of the others, probably not. But, you know, they came in as they were bought from the other people or traded or came. You know, we got sued on a couple of them. Yeah. And never worked out against us. But uh, what you see now are characters created by the network that they're showing them. So they have complete control. Sure. Whereas the others, when, you know, Hulk basically was an actor that we hired. Mm-hmm. So he controlled his own character. Um, he's, Terry is a good guy. He's, he just, and here's the other thing. Most of these people are from, their families are from the region that used to be Yugoslavia, Bosnia. They're just big people. I mean, really big people. Yeah. You see them in the gym. They're not like you and me. They're big people. Yeah. Like being around professional athletes. You know, they're just, they don't look like you and me. They just, yeah. you know, I'm on the board of the Baseball Hall of Fame and you meet these inductees and you look at them and say, I don't look like him. <laughs> yeah. They're just, they're, they're not Yogi Bears anymore. Those guys are gone. Yeah. People playing ball at that level are big people. You know, they're natural athletes genetically. And uh, hopefully those are the people you want. But character building is really important in professional wrestling because people fall in love with the character. They'll tune in to watch a character. You'll go to the ballpark to see Jackie Robinson. You go to the ballpark to see uh, people like uh, uh, Judge. You know, for the Yankees, was he going to break the record? You buy a ticket to watch him, Aaron Judge. Right. So you want to create a character that people will respond to. You know, I do a lot of consulting for sailing. I'm not a sailor myself, but we need to build characters that people will follow. You know, just because they know how to handle a boat, that's not enough. They have to they have to have some controversy uh-huh. about the character. That's what happens in... NASCAR, you know, the guy yeah. gets out, 
gets out of the car and gets in a fight with the other guy. Next time you want to see how they're going to compete against each other. Formula One is the same way. So you you have to build. People care about personalities. Yeah, they I do. Just, you know, that, that's who these influencers that people follow and the hundreds of thousands of people follow. That's a winning formula. You mm-hmm. have to try to do the same thing. So um, when, when the Yankees traded for Alex Rodriguez, there was a lot of controversy about that. It was when I was with the Yankee Nets. And I was telling people, we'll sell more tickets, which was true. It'll cover the cost. You know, there are certain professional athletes. Jordan was one. When Jordan, when Jordan was at the height of his career and played the Hawks, we moved the game from the Omni to the Dome. Sold out. You couldn't see anything. It's like getting the last row for the final four. You can't see anything. Yeah. But it sold out. Just you want to be part of history. You want to, what is the athlete really? Look at Tiger Woods in this tournament that just occurred out in Pebble Beach. Television was showing more of him than they were of the leader. Sure. And they interviewed him, and you know he's he he was golf, and he can be golf again. Yeah, absolutely. There are a few, there are a few people like that in different elements. Movie stars, yeah. Tom Cruise in a movie, more people are going to go see. That's right. It's just the nature of the beast. You want you want your program to be so special that people will not miss it. Sure. I got to tune in. I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to miss who he has, what he's saying. Mm-hmm. What's his name? Who's the guy that's on um, a big following of radio? Uh, come on. Howard Stern. Who? Howard Stern. No. Um, He's controversial. He did this thing with uh, Spotify. Oh, uh, Joe Rogan. Look, Joe Rogan. He's got an unbelievable number of people listen to him. Amazing. Amazing. What he's done. And most of the time he's full of crap, but he just, he says something and he becomes a lightning rod. And he's had everybody you could think of on there from every aspect of life. Yeah. He, he appeals he appeals a cross section of demographics. Yep. You know, so we'll have a guy on mixed martial arts or mm-hmm. judo or something and talk about their diet or, or a special forces guy, you know, talking about how we handle the situation. Next thing he has is a politician who's you wouldn't vote for, but he has a mom and you think you'd vote for him. So, yeah. Hard. Right. That's where we're at in the world. Yeah. Um, there's about about three more things I wanted to go over with you, uh, if that's okay. okay. The uh, drug testing policy after Louis Piccoli passed away, I believe in 97 or 98, uh, was that modified or was that changed? Well... Um, you know, people who use drugs, steroids and performance enhancing drugs, it, 
it's a challenging kind of thing because there's always a new drug that somebody comes out with. Right. And I brought in people from that I used from the Olympic Committee that would were the best in the world at testing, but the only thing that they could tell you is if if you stop using a drug, how your performance changed. So for example, people that are on if you're on something performance enhancing drug or it, you know it could be a beta blocker because you want to be calmer it could be a whole range of things if i take you off the beta i watch your behavior change yeah so for example he would the doctors would tell me why somebody who takes up smoking but they didn't smoke before mm. to calm their nerves or starts drinking alcohol when they weren't really an alcohol drinker so there's a lifestyle change that occurs when you start to put a system in place. So if I test, if I think that you're on drugs and I test you, you're not going to take the drug while I'm testing you, even though you don't know whether I can find it or not. Right. If you're not taking it, your behavior doesn't change. Right. But if you were taking it and you stopped, maybe you start sweating more. Mm -hmm. That's a typical indication. Or you try to find a substitute. You start chewing tobacco to get mm -hmm. a you do things you didn't do before. So observing people becomes more, as important as drug testing is. You know, people experiment with different things. I've read that um, Formula One drive, some Formula One drivers take different drugs. I've read that uh, to enhance their performance. Yeah. Um, in, in shooting sports, beta blockers make a big difference, you know, because it just calms you down. So they become, that's a prohibited drug in shooting sports, but it's not a prohibited drug. If you take uppers and downers, you know, you, there's a whole range of things that could be personal to you yeah. that may affect your behavior in a certain way, but don't make a difference to me. Mm-hmm. So um, we decided to do it, and we decided that neither Eric or I would be involved in it. So we could say we had we didn't we didn't decide who was tested. We don't see the results. Okay. But some people were pretty honest, and they admitted, "I take this or I take that." You know, um, we had a we had a baseball player internationally who took certain drugs to enhance his ability to have children with his wife. Mm. They were on the prohibited list. He didn't know it. And, and unfortunately, he suffered from that. But there are certain things that people will take for different reasons that have nothing to do with performance. I mean, overall. Yeah. Usually, usually someone who's taking something for, for for either strength or behavior, something will happen when they stop taking it. That's pretty typical. Sure. And again, it could be something as simple, as I said, as sweating all the time or yeah. anxious behavior. Yeah. Apparently, you know, I, I've read some studies where um, 
years ago, some of these advanced groups like SEAL groups, lots of fighting in the amongst them. Mm. And some people would say it was because they were on drugs. Some people would say it was because they came off drugs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm no expert on this, so it'd really be good to talk to someone who knows more about it than me. Right. Um, Well, when the AOL Time Warner merger first become uh, a thing as far as being discussed before it actually happened, uh, what was your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it occurred at the end of the year in 99 into early 2000. I had already made an announcement that I was leaving. So, in fact, after the announcement, Jerry Levin was the chairman of uh, Time Warner. Uh, I thought I made a mistake because all of us, the stock just went crazy. You know, it went to like $104, $105 a share. And I said, Jesus, that's pretty stupid on my part. This is going to be a $200 stock. I'll be really rich. Mm-hmm. And then a short time after that, it dropped. Eventually, it dropped to $8. Mm-hmm. So my decision was really good, but I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. I made a bad decision. I was not party to any of those negotiations. They were all private. I heard lots of stories. For example, effectively, Ted lost all of his leadership positions. He he was really marked out. Yeah. You know, he once that occurred, uh, when someone told me that he went in to see Jerry Levin and said, "What am I going to do now that this thing is happening with AOL?" and Levin said, "You have nothing to do." And then, and then Ted said, "What about you?" And Levin said, "No, I'm okay." <laughs> People covering their butt, yeah, yeah. It didn't work out very well, did it? No, it didn't. We went through some craziness now with Discovery and renamed this Warner Sports or whatever it's called, Discovery. And I've been reading about these regional networks that are going bankrupt and showing different teams, baseball and hockey, basketball. NFL doesn't suffer from that because they really don't depend upon regional networks for mm-hmm. preseason, but not during the season. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point before you left, Turner, did you kind of think it might be a problem that WCW was losing money? I thought it was going to be a problem when the people who ran finance told me that. How did that, how did that conversation go? You know, it's basically the, you have two entertainment networks, TBS and TNT. Mm-hmm. All the rest, there were other new networks that they have now, but at that time, all the rest are news networks. So the two entertainment networks are their presidents are entertainment people. If I tell you this, you probably wouldn't believe they don't even, Some of them don't even want the NBA to be on there. That's unbelievable. I know. They'd rather show a, a movie 10 times, you know, which is predictable. Wow. So, so what happens is 
things like wrestling become pressured by the entertainment people who don't see it as being real entertainment. And you're always fighting that. And Eric became a victim of that. And the Goodwill Games became a victim of that. Same thing. Goodwill Games networks didn't want it. Mm. They started as a money loser. You know, when Jordan left the NBA, the ratings dropped dramatically. And so to bring ratings up, they wanted to have original programming, especially with the movie studios that we own. So there's a lot of that going on. But um, just like, you know, you, you have something what they call a hockey stick, or, you know, it's just starts going. People want to jump on that bandwagon. She starts to change and go down. Everyone has jumped on that bandwagon. Yeah. The wrestling became a victim of not being an entertainment. They didn't see it as entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like Hollywood. It wasn't. It, now it's entertainment. Now mm-hmm. it's, Fox has it and other people have it. Because people who are wrestling are trained to be entertainers. Yeah. Different. In the in those the old days, in the nineties, people became wrestlers and learned the wrestling routines. They weren't trained as actors, and and there's a big difference mm-hmm. to an audience. Well, I guess that call led to you having to have a talk with Eric. Well, Eric. I, I was, that was forced on me. I didn't want to have that conversation with him. Mm. They said, um, there's a provision in contract, which is called, I think it's called pay or play. That as long as we pay you, we're not violating the contract. So they told Eric to go home and sit there. And I was leaving. I couldn't change it. And the, and it was basically pushed by the CFO and others that were all finance people. Maybe one of the networks. I don't know who's really all behind it. Yeah. I don't know. Look, Hollywood has the same problem with people who want to be in control of, you know, what goes up before the public's eyes, you know, who are creative people. And, you know, if you don't have it my way, I... We've talked about this earlier. I probably could have helped him a little bit had I reined him in a little bit. Yeah. Probably. But Yeah. He had discussed a thing about uh, an investigation. Uh, apparently somebody had a had a conversation with somebody with a with a WCW crew shirt on in an elevator. Um and it was investigated. This person was investigated. And the company and everything was investigated uh, at that point um, because of, that, of what that person said. And one of the one of the things that was said was uh, Eric was given Diamond Dallas Page at one point five million, and he was getting a kickback off of that, and there all this stuff. I never heard that. I doubt that, but yeah. I've spent some private time at Diamond Dallas Page. You know, he's a good guy. He's from New Jersey. He is a good guy. He's a good guy. 
Well, first of all, Eric gave him five million. Uh, allegedly one point five million, but I've. But I Eric doesn't have this. Eric doesn't have that kind of money. No. He doesn't. He doesn't have that kind of money to give somebody one point five million. No. Think about it. To give away one point five million, you have to make almost three million. He didn't make that kind of money. I know what he made. He didn't make that kind of money. Yeah, I don't have a doubt about that. Um, well, when you decided to leave, you know, uh, what was your, did you just want out before the whole merger thing happened or what was the deal there? No, no, no. The merger thing happened after I decided to leave. Okay. I decided to leave in October. The merger thing happened really in December. That's why I said, after I made my decision, I said to myself, maybe I made a bad decision, but I was, Merger was thrown down on us, but I was not party to it. And and it was after the fact. Again, if the announcement was made, I can remember, the announcement was made like the first few days of January. And I was in a car when the news came on. And that's the first I really knew about it. Wow. That would have been around January 4th or 5th. Mm. That's when I said, geez, I made a mistake. I should have stayed. Did you ever call Ted or have a conversation with him about that? Just no. No. Any conversation we've had since then has been casual. Yeah. No. Oh. Uh, I mean, you know, you hear all sorts of rumors and probably none of them are true, but Yeah. I learned I've changed jobs a lot. I learned once you leave, you're gone. Yeah. You're gone. Give all your logo stuff away to Goodwill. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think if you'd have stayed that, because you were kind of going to bat for, for Eric and a lot of things, I feel like, even in the 99 there when it was. Yeah. If I'd have stayed, he would have been reinstated. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's hard to argue for somebody when you they call you gone. Yeah. No. And and understand, Eric and I are not the same person. With two, you know, he always referred to my military background, but we're not. He's got a hundred ideas. And you got to sift through those, and you're the you're the wrong person to make a judgment on those ideas because you're mm-hmm. not the creative person. You know, he had this idea to make a movie, and he was going to do it in different parts. And I gave him I gave him some money to do it, but so after so many minutes of of producing this, he was going to have uh, people evaluate moviegoers, whether it was worthwhile watching mm. doing that and build a movie that way. So, you know, whether the customer really liked the movie because they were part of approving it. Yeah. That doesn't work, but I guess yeah. money to try it. It's been tried before many times. And, you know, 
years ago, Ford created this car called the Edsel. And I remember reading in the Detroit paper, it said, we know what the public wants. They don't know what they want. They want this car. It was a complete failure. It was the biggest failure in the history of automotive manufacturing because they, Ford guessed what the public wanted, but the public didn't care. You know? Yeah. If you're writing, yeah, I read this, I read this quote, said, if you're going to get into horse racing, bet on the jockey because the, the best jockey, because the best jockey rides the best horses. Well, that's entertainment. If you have the best creative guy, that's the person you bet on. Right. Because that person is going to have the best product. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, you ended up working for George Steinbrenner. Yeah. And really, really did some amazing stuff uh, with a lot of different things after Turner, after you left Turner. Um, how rewarding was that, you know, well, coming out of? You know, the the big things were creating the Yes Network, which was sold recently for four point something billion, started out at zero, um, which brought value to investors and the Yankees. Um, creating a home for the Nets, creating a home for uh, a new stadium for the Yankees, and creating a new arena for the Devils. All three became successful. Each one was complicated. There was a lot of in and out. Some some of the deals would involve the Mets. Some of the deals involved New Jersey more than anywhere else. But it all turned out okay. So I remember telling our people, I said, there are two basketball teams in New York, the Knicks and the Nets. The Knicks are the team that you pay a lot of money to go see because it's, it's entertainment. You sit in the front row, the TV cameras are on you. And people who run the city talk about the Knicks. I said, the Nets belong to the people. If you go to Barclays Center now, you'll see that who attends compared to who attends the Knicks. Knicks is show and tell. The people that watch the Nets are more of the average person. So it turned out putting them in Brooklyn was the right thing. They weren't going to find that in New Jersey because it was hot. You know, when you were playing at the Meadowlands, that's hard to get to. There's no, you don't have a subway or a train or a bus to take you there. You got to drive there. So it's not. It's not easy to get to. So playing there in the old state arena, and you can get, you, you can take, uh, you can take a train and get to where the Devils play in New Jersey, Newark. You can get a, you can take a train from Penn Station and be a block away from where the Devils play. You can get on almost any train subway in New York City and get to Barclays Center. 
one way or another by transferring. Mm. When you go to see the Knicks, a private car takes you. Madison Square Garden. Different. And and it turned out okay, but there was a lot of pressure. The owner, the ownership of the Knicks, who also owned the Rangers, and and own cable television station broadcast, um, the Dolan family, they didn't want a new stadium in Manhattan. Mm. They saw that as competition to them, and that's how the net, the Nets became in Barclay, and that's how everything moved in their own direction, and. Unfortunately, the Yankees came off of their network, Cablevision, and went on the Yes Network, which cost them a lot. But mm. They sued us, and they lost. Wow. A little complicated. A lot of lawyers. I cannot imagine. No, you can't. You can't imagine. You can't imagine what was going on in those couple of months. You can't. It's hard. Personalities, deals, money, investment firms, Goldman Sachs, Mm. just all over the place. Everybody taking credit for everything. Well, what are you up to nowadays? Uh, Well, I I mentioned that I'm in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. Um, I chair the athletic board at the Air Force Academy. I'm chairman of a couple of startup companies, and one is uh, what people call a SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Group, um, and we're we're soon to announce the target. So a lot of business stuff, and and everybody calls me and says, "My son wants to be in sports. Can you help him?" And now my excuse is I'm too old to help them out. <laughs> Every kid wants to be in sports. Yeah. Well, we just talk to them. <laughs> well, do you still watch wrestling any? No. Not really. I don't watch. My television viewing is more of Netflix it is than anything else nowadays. That's some good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. Sorry. Thank you for having me. Oh, pleasure's all mine. I appreciate you doing it. Hope we didn't take up too much of your time here on a Sunday. Sunday afternoon. I played pickleball this morning. Pickleball. I see that's that's something I've never had a hint of a thought about. You want to try it. It's fun to do. It's really social. It's fun to do. You don't uh, have to be a great tennis player to play pickleball. You in uh, Charleston? Yeah. That's pretty out there. It's, uh, you walk the streets downtown, they're packed. Mm. Tourists now. You know, and city has really become a real destination for people. That's All right. Nice. Andrew, and if you need me again, get a hold of me, okay? Yes, sir. And uh, we appreciate it. Appreciate y'all tuning in to Picking It Out once again. Uh, Like I said, subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's Andrew Pope on YouTube. You can follow me on all the social media uh, channels. 
and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you like what you hear and you want to hear more of it. So we'll see you next time. Appreciate it, y'all.